This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. The landmark Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade raised more questions than it answered when it comes to the future of abortion rights in the United States. Will state laws divide the country into red and blue? What about legal challenges that have already begun over everything from travel to obtain services to the right to acquire medication through the mail? Will African-American women, already three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women, find their health care outcomes worsen? The decision also raises new questions about data privacy, with search histories and health apps possibly used for tracking. In this month's episode of Equal Time, we will take a closer look with guests who can shed some light on life in a post-Roe world. Amy Stepanovich is a nationally recognized expert in domestic surveillance, cybersecurity, and privacy law. She currently is Vice President for U.S. Policy at the Future of Privacy Forum. She has been Executive Director for the Silicon Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship at Colorado Law. She previously served as U.S. Policy Manager and Global Policy Counsel at Access Now in Washington, D.C., where she worked to protect human rights through law and policy involving technologies and their use. She serves as a board member to the Internet Education Foundation and as an advisory board member to the Electronic Privacy Information Center. Kwajalein Jackson currently serves as Executive Director at Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta, Georgia, an independent, nonprofit, multi-generational, multiracial reproductive health, rights, and justice organization. It provides compassionate abortion care in the South. Since 2013, she has led the expansion of the organization's statewide and national impact and deepened its community partnerships, leading civic engagement, advocacy, education, and outreach teams. She became the organization's first Black woman executive director in 2018. She sits on the board of directors for All Options, Abortion Care Network, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, and the LOLA. And in 2022, she was featured on former President Barack Obama's Instagram as an activist standing up for abortion rights and fighting for reproductive justice. Well, welcome to Equal Time, Amy and Kwajalein. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yes, thank you. Well, the topic is Roe v. Wade, which though the Supreme Court overturning the decision was weeks ago, there are so many ramifications. So I wanted to start, Kwajalein, even with the leak of the draft decision overturning Roe v. Wade, many seemed surprised at the Supreme Court's action when the decision finally came down. At the Feminist Women's Health Center, what kind of preparations and policies were you putting in place to meet your clients' needs? Well, Mary, we have been preparing for this decision for many months, um, working with attorneys 
from the Center for Reproductive Rights, working with our financial consultants to do revenue forecasting, um, working internally with our staff and board of directors to determine what kinds of adjustments we could make to our clinical care. And even with all of that preparation, we still certainly feel gut punched um, by this decision. So I understand why people feel so heartbroken, so devastated, even though we, many people in the movement have believed that this was an inevitability. At Feminist Women's Health Center, we provide both medication and procedural abortion care up to the legal gestational limit in Georgia, which is still currently 22 weeks from last menstrual period. But we also do comprehensive gynecological care and trans health care, contraceptive services, STI testing. And so part of our strategy has been to really make our wellness and preventative care more robust in anticipation of losing some of our abortion revenue. But at the same time, as we expect Georgia will very soon restrict abortion in line with the decision from the Supreme Court, we also know that surrounding states that have lost access completely will likely still depend on Georgia to some extent. So we imagine that for our abortion care, we will simultaneously contract and surge. Yeah, to follow up a bit, are there special obstacles in the South? You talked about surrounding states because affordable and accessible health care has been a challenge for a while. Access had already been pretty difficult for some communities before the court ruling, correct? That's absolutely correct. In Georgia, we had been seeing patients traveling for care from Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky for many years preceding the overturning of Roe, in part because of the lack of facilities. Many of those states only have one or very few clinics to support all of the people who live there. And every state has its own set of obstacles and barriers between a person and their care. So some have longer waiting periods, some require multiple visits. And so there are certainly reasons why many, many people chose to travel for abortion services even before losing access completely. But I think coupled with that, we see in many of those states in the South and in the Midwest where state policymakers chose not to expand Medicaid in alignment with the intentions of the Affordable Care Act, have consistently underinvested in the long-term well-being of many of the people who live there, people who are the most impoverished. Um, We've seen consistent policies that have failed to address some of the critical needs that so many people have, and instead, very often, put a lot of their energy and attention and resources towards continuing to erode away abortion when they could be supporting maternal health, for example, or infant mortality or low birth weight babies. There's so many things that state actors could have been spending their time on when they instead often chose to harm queer and trans communities, immigrant communities, and attack abortion. Hmm. So it's a matter of time and resources. Uh, Amy, 
As an expert on privacy, cybersecurity, and surveillance, how will this ruling affect those seeking abortion services and even information? Absolutely. I think one of the big issues here as we look toward abortion and reproductive health services being outlawed or criminalized is making sure that people who seek to um, receive that care or provide that care are protected within those actions. And the biggest difference that many have pointed out between before Roe v. Wade came from the Supreme Court and now post Roe v. Wade is the massive amount of personal information that is collected by third-party social media app providers, digital services. And it is unclear the extent to which information can be used to build a case that somebody has received or provided certain services, but we know that there are a lot of avenues available to law enforcement to seek out that information. And it's really important to make people aware of that, where their risks are, how they can be impacted, and also empower them to know that, unfortunately, in in lieu of legal change, that they need to be making smart decisions, but it's largely outside of their personal responsibility of what they can do were law enforcement to seek out their information. And so it's so hard to give people like, this is a 100% way to keep your information safe, which is what so many people are looking for. And all people have, um, I think, can really be given is a false sense of security that if you do X, Y, and Z, you're safe. And unfortunately, it's just a matter of like being aware, being vigilant, staying on guard um, in regard to a lot of your information being collected. Yeah, we've heard how many people have been doing things like deleting apps and panicking because they don't understand exactly what it could mean. And I know that there are probably some risks that people are not aware of. Maybe you could talk about what people should be aware of. We've talked about it can reveal your location, your eating habits, quite a few things about your history. Absolutely. I think... We've seen these calls to delete menstruation and period trackers, and that is a very intuitive, immediate response for some folks, because that's going to be the, the most clear indication that somebody is or is not pregnant. However, A, we have to recognize these, these apps provide real benefits for people. Um, people who are trying to get pregnant or not get pregnant can really rely on these apps. People who are tracking serious medical conditions There are reasons why these apps are getting used, especially for people who don't have time or resources to rely on written tracking, um, which just takes a a level of commitment and dedication that you don't have if you're working two or three jobs um, necessarily. And so A, these apps serve a population that very much need them. And so telling people to get rid of them doesn't necessarily recognize that benefit but B, as, as you indicated, there are so many different ways um, and routes and types of information that can implicate whether or not you're pregnant. I told somebody earlier today, I'm very worried that we're going to see in the next couple of years records of grocery store purchases from a rewards card that show that people were buying peanut butter or pickles at midnight 
um, as some sort of indication that somebody is pre- like that law enforcement would try to make that really ridiculous connection because we've seen people put forth um, pieces of evidence that try to make connections that just don't necessarily go together. So changes in eating habits, changes in buying habits, exercise patterns, um, your fitness tracker can tell um, the extent to which you are working out if you change your type of exercise or how strenuous your exercise is, which could be used as an indication. Location tracking can reveal what hospitals you're visiting and at what frequency. So if all of a sudden you're visiting a address that provides gynecological services at an increased frequency or go to a health clinic or an abortion center that's available in your location tracker. So all of these different avenues can come together to paint a pretty vivid picture, even if you don't have that explicit um, menstruation tracking information. And that's a um, really robust um, environment that people can't necessarily personally control from hour to hour, let alone day or to day or month to month. Wow, talk about Big Brother. And if for those who feel that this is really going out on a limb, we already have seen some prosecutions based on some of this kind of evidence. So, Kwajalein, I wanted to ask, we already know, and you referenced, that there are many inequities in the healthcare system in America that exist now. In particular, Black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause, and the numbers are even more alarming in some states. So could you comment on how this court decision could worsen health outcomes, especially for minorities and people of color? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm deeply concerned about um, is really aligned with what we were just discussing. I think that one of the factors that affects people's pregnancy outcomes is stress. And so the stress and fear and uncertainty that surrounds the the potential for criminalizing their actions or activities, moving through the world um, in in a pregnant body, all of those things can impact people's ability to carry a, a healthy pregnancy to term. But combined with that, you know, some of what we I discussed earlier, the fact that people have not had consistent access to preventative care that might be able to either identify or help manage chronic conditions that can also be exacerbated during a pregnancy. Um, in many states, people are able to qualify for Medicaid once they become pregnant, but lose that coverage very shortly after they deliver. There have been many strides to extend that period of time to up to a year postpartum, um, but those have been long legislative fights. And so losing access to your healthcare after you deliver, when all of your energy, all of your focus, um, all of your attention has now been shifted to a new infant, there are times where people have health conditions that worsen during that that first year after delivery, during postpartum period. So one of the things that we've really been trying to emphasize through my work at the Black Mamas Matter Alliance is access to additional support during what they call in the fourth trimester, whether that's from midwives or doulas or um, home healthcare workers, so that people can have the ability to be attuned to what's happening in their own bodies in addition to what they need to extend to their new babies. 
I think that the combination of these existing, these pre-existing conditions, the system, systemic racism that exists within our healthcare system that causes healthcare providers to potentially not believe people's um, expressions of pain, deny people access to prescriptions that they need, be scrutinized and surveilled when they go into hospital systems. All of those things are also contributing to the high rates of maternal mortality that we're seeing around the country. And many people who are traveling for abortion services, again, are putting themselves at risk of criminalization. And so certainly that is also something that people need to consider. That's another factor that makes pregnancy potentially much more dangerous. When people have adverse outcomes like miscarriage or stillbirth, and that those outcomes are still being um, potentially seen as a criminal act, even as a person is grieving, I think all of these are outcomes that we can anticipate only getting worse um, as we see the ramifications of the overturning of Roe. Yeah, and when you talk about stress, Kwajalein, there's that economic stress. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the Roe decision is connected to social safety net policies from pre-K to paid family leave and child care policies that uh, really will impact folks as well. Yes. One of the studies that I often turn people to was done by IBIS, Reproductive Health, and the Center for Reproductive Rights. It was called Evaluating Priorities. And it examined the places where there were the highest number of abortion restrictions and looked to see what other policies and programs existed to support families, children, health and safety, and saw overwhelmingly that the places, again, that had devoted the most time and energy towards eradicating abortion were also seeing some of the worst outcomes and the fewest number of supportive programs for children and families. I certainly know that if we were really truly interested as a country in investing in people's ability to carry healthy pregnancies to term, to support and raise healthy families, to have the resources necessary to care for themselves and others, then I truly believe that we would spend a lot more of our time investing in addressing poverty, addressing the lack of education, addressing the criminalizing and overpopulation of jails. I think all of these things contribute to the disproportionate number of abortions that happen in the country. It's not the only reason that a person might choose to terminate a pregnancy, but if you are choosing between having safe and stable housing and continuing a pregnancy to term, then that's not a real equitable choice. Um, There certainly are circumstances where people who don't have a lot of resources would love to grow their families, but don't feel that they actually have the option to do so. And so I think that while we are trying to make sure that abortion continues to be available and accessible to all who need it, we also need to consider how we can support people's ability to thrive in the communities where they live. Uh, I think so often about Mississippi, you know, the case that actually was heard before the Supreme Court and the ways that communities in Mississippi have been living 
very destitute um, existences for such a long time. Mississippi has existed with only one abortion clinic for many, many, many years. Mississippi has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the country. And so my desire would be that we, rather than abandon the people of Mississippi, that we would be able to pour into the families and communities of Mississippi so that they have the opportunity to have the rights and resources and recognition that they need to thrive. Yeah. Leading from that, Amy, we talked about privilege and that this issue of privilege affects not just access to services, but also who has the time and resources to protect themselves when it comes to data exposure. And uh, so you've spoken about the inequities in the data privacy space. Isn't that true, Amy? I have. And I think it's a not totally understood or respected space how much it costs people today to have privacy. So for instance, if you have to go out and purchase vitamins, um, prenatal vitamins, then can you afford to pay for those in cash so you don't have to put them on a credit or debit card and create a financial record? Can you afford to purchase those without using a rewards card and getting that $10 off coupon that the store is offering because they're an expensive item and a lot of people can't do that. Can you understand technology enough to know that you should leave your phone at home when going to see your provider? That's an area of technical literacy that if you maybe didn't receive that you know education to that extent, you might not know that you're being tracked in that way, how to um, stop that tracking or that you that you can't have your device with you. You might not know that you can um, have your records compelled by law enforcement, um, not only your actual communications records, so emails that you send or text messages um, under a higher standard, but that it's a relatively low standard for certain um, types of metadata or location data to be turned over. There was a recent editorial in the LA Times by um, a Princeton professor, Janet Vertizzi, um, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing properly, where she talked about wanting to try to hide her, pre- her pregnancy from the internet and from digital providers. And the great lengths that she went to to be or- able to do that and specifically calling out her own privilege and being able to take those steps, having the technological understanding from her professional time spent in the field to know what to do on her devices, um, to know what services to use, to know what settings to check. There has been a study that it would take days out of your year, if not weeks, to read the privacy policies that we're confronted with in a single day. People do not have the time to understand what is happening, and they shouldn't have to. We should have a baseline level of protection for folks. But until we get to that point, those who are less privileged are not going to be able to enjoy the same privacy rights as the people who have more time, more resources, more money to be able to spend on it, Um, which means that they are going to be disproportionately available for investigation by law enforcement because their information is going to be out there. So you're going to see the same communities that have been over-policed throughout history all the way up till today continue to be over-policed in the reproductive rights space. 
Wow. And, and you mentioned about law enforcement and cooperation. And I think a lot of the public probably doesn't quite understand how easily they can get that information because there's a complication when it comes to the courts, the Constitution and privacy rights and data once it's in the hands of third parties who could then cooperate with law enforcement. So, Amy, can you tease that out a little bit? I know you, you are very good at explaining it simply, separating fact and fiction on this issue, because I, I do believe a lot of people don't understand Sure. So if you have your information, like we have, you know, 50 years ago, you have a safety deposit box, or you have a, you know, document container in your home, and that's where you're keeping your medical records and your tax forms. Um, There is a constitutional right to privacy in that under the Fourth Amendment. However, there's also a doctrine called the third party doctrine, primarily enacted to respond to phone records or bank records, that says that once you turn that information over to somebody else, you lose the constitutional protection. So if I tell a friend a piece of information, I no longer have constitutional protection in that information from law enforcement. Same if I put a document rather than putting it in my you know, home lockbox on a digital cloud provider service and I store it there, it is now in the hands of a third party, which means I'm losing that constitutional protection. And today, everything is in the hands of an electronic third party. There are some laws that are pa- have been passed to make up for that, but they have very narrow strands of protection for documents. For instance, they might only apply to email that is less than a month old. So if your email is more than a month old, you get lower protection for that email. Who, what lay person really can be expected to know that after a month, your email gets less protection under federal law? That's doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. People don't understand that. And it's one of the reasons why I think we're actually going to have to see more Supreme Court action in order to protect people here. The Supreme Court has been eroding this doctrine little by little in regard to certain types of third-party information, mostly location information. If you have your phone on you and your phone is able to receive calls or text messages, your phone provider knows your location. It has to to be able to serve you those messages um, and those phone calls. This court has started to say law enforcement cannot get that location information over time without some sort of warrant or due process, bringing it back within that constitutional protection. We're going to need to see so many more of these decisions, cases brought before the Supreme Court, to be able to make sure people just have a baseline level of protection in their information, because it's not only the singular pieces of information that we have to worry about. It's the picture that is painted by all of these different things coming together that law enforcement can get access to. And it's the, the first and best way to limit what law enforcement will be able to do in response to this ruling in their investigations um, at the state level is to ensure that more and more of this information is protected by the Fourth Amendment and protected by that privacy interest within that amendment. Um, So it doesn't stop them from getting the information, but it really raises the standard for a lot of this information. So they can't go on necessarily fishing expeditions to just get whatever they can. Wow. Well, Amy has talked about how these court cases are coming and changing it little by little. So Kwajalein, you know that so many of these state laws are changing so quickly. So many of the states have had trigger laws. It's difficult to keep track. 
as well as all the lawsuits. I know organizations have sued South Carolina over their six-week ban on the issue of the state constitution. It's very complicated. So how can citizens keep legislators on the local, state, and federal level connected to voices from the community? I know that you are very cognizant of how other rights, such as voting rights, are key uh, when it comes to the issue of reproductive freedom. Absolutely. I believe that it is almost a straight line from voter suppression to abortion bans like we've seen go across the country. And so it's certainly important for us to be thinking about these issues as deeply intersectional with one another and not as isolated. We know that when we're thinking about abortion access, we zoom out, we're actually having a conversation about bodily autonomy. And certainly that affects some of the ways that policymakers have attacked trans people, for example. I certainly always encourage people to be deeply engaged at the state and local level because, as you mentioned, things move much more quickly at the state and local level than they do at the federal level. Um, And people have a lot more access and influence at the state and local level than they do at the federal level. And so, you know, I have run into my representative at the grocery store. Some people go to church with their attorney general. And so I think that really developing relationships um, so that you can be able to use your advocacy to move forward the issues that you care about. We certainly, as an organization, engage in voter engagement, civic engagement, voter registration, GOTV, um, so that we can help people to get connected to the things that are happening where they live. I certainly would also encourage people Um, to consider running for office. We certainly know that there are things that need to change. And so if you feel really deeply connected to community and to issues that are important, then taking it a step further to become even more engaged in the process. Oftentimes people have a very limited civic education and understanding about who is making the decision that they are interested in. And Figuring out sort of at what level of government are some of these things being determined. So I think it's intentionally very confusing and it takes a lot of work. You know, again, speaking to what Amy said, many people are privileged to have the time and energy and resources to be able to investigate every candidate, to read every platform, to uh, research ballot initiatives before they get to the booth. Um, So I would also say if you don't have that time and energy being engaged in local community organizations that are doing work around the issues that you care about can be a pathway to better understand what's at stake, who to hold accountable, and how you can leverage your voice and your opinion and your experience to make real change where you are. You've also pointed out, Kwajalein, that While some focus is on national organizations like Planned Parenthood that have more flexibility when it comes to, say, relocating, that folks need to also be concerned with smaller individual independent providers who have challenges of their own. I think that there is a bit of misconception about who is providing the majority of abortion care in the country. And 
I certainly believe that Planned Parenthood is a critical voice, both in the political space and in the healthcare ecosystem. Um, they do much more than just provide abortion care. But oftentimes, smaller independent abortion providers are overlooked, in part because we just don't have the same level of platform or name recognition as some of the national larger organizations and institutions. Not all are nonprofit organizations, but many are. And so we are oftentimes competing for fundraising dollars during these periods of crisis with, again, Planned Parenthood or ACLU or other large institutions that are very well funded and resourced. And so, I, again, I would encourage people as they're thinking about how to invest in this fight to examine who is doing the care where they live. Many of the independent abortion providers that are in targeted states are right now trying to do some of that analysis that I spoke about at the top of our call to reconfigure what kind of healthcare services they're able to offer so that they can stay open, so that they can maintain their license in the face of sweeping abortion bans. So if you have the option of choosing a new gynecologist or choosing a new place to have your birth control prescription filled or choosing a new primary care provider, looking to some of those places that are also have been historically or continue to offer abortion care, that's another way to help support our sustainability through this moment. The other thing that I just want to mention is in addition to independent abortion providers, abortion funds are also a critical piece of this work. Abortion funds exist to support people in the cost of an abortion um, by pledging a portion of that fee, but many also offer practical support and logistics like gas for your car or help with lodging or help with childcare um, so that people can get to the services that they so desperately need. All of these obstacles existed while Roe was fully intact, but they are even more critical in this period of time where people have to travel further in order to get the care that they need. And so I would also just encourage people as they're thinking about where to volunteer their time, where to give their donations, to consider abortion funds as another place to help to support what's going to be needed in the next few years. Amy, now, Quadrant has given some advice for people to get more involved. I want to ask you on this issue of data privacy, which so many people are trying to navigate. Many are seeking answers and basically instructions on what to do. So what are some strategies that people can use to protect themselves and their information? I think there are some basic things folks can do that don't take a ton of time necessarily checking the privacy settings on your phone and, for instance, just looking up how many apps you have that track your location. Is that tracking always on? Is it while you're using the app? Does it need your location at all? Can you turn it off? This is like a five-minute tops, what we call um, security hygiene check. Same thing that you would do washing your hands, uh, making sure that more information isn't getting out to people um, or companies or organizations then need it or then that you want to have it and you receive a benefit from. 
using encrypted messaging services like iMessage or Signal or WhatsApp, where the information that you're messaging doesn't necessarily go back to the provider. So if law enforcement wants to get access to that information, they have to come to you or the person you're communicating with directly, which means you'll have some awareness of it and it won't be an organization that's subject to a gag order. It's really great for anything sensitive or personal that you want to communicate. I think the third thing is just knowing the entities that you're interacting with um, down to like really simple things. So for instance, Wordle was a game that became very popular. There was the original version of it. And then there were like several copycat versions run by app providers that just were investing in its success um, that people would download. Once you download something on your phone, it has access to different types of information. My family downloaded a lot of these knockoffs um, and didn't realize that it wasn't the original. Um, look, just looking at the, like, who is this app provided by? And is it the person you expect the app to be provided by? Because you might see that there are a lot of duplicates or copycats from organizations that you don't trust or you don't want um, to have on your device. Um, shopping somewhere where you think it's going to, that company might protect your information better, knowing what browser you're using when you surf the internet. These are kind of basic decisions you make every day when you open these things, these items up or when you go to the store. But if you like sit down once and make an intentional purposeful decision, I think that you can just duplicate that over time. And so these become things that are accomplishable but never to think that that's going to solve the problem. I just can't overemphasize that enough. We see so many people who get this false sense of security. Like if I do these three things, I'm okay. And that's never going to be the case. And I don't ever want to put people in a position where they think they're protected. And so they do something that um, can cause them even greater harm. And that's true for people pursuing reproductive health services, but also people who provide these services. We've seen those people specifically targeted for violence um, and for law enforcement action now that you know these services are being outlawed. And it's just as important that we're protecting the providers as we're protecting the, the people who need that care. That's a very important point. Have you seen since this decision, Amy, people being more vigilant and more aware? We've actually seen this resonate from a privacy perspective with people in a way that when you talked about, you know, in 2014, 2015, and Edward Snowden was the big um, headline and all of these things the NSA was doing, that resonated with some people, but it didn't really connect to like people on a personal level. Here is something that people can really feel and feel the threat of the, the risk of harm. They understand how it could personally impact them or somebody they care about. And that's, I think, what really is needed to make privacy, which is really an ambiguous, amorphous concept, resonate with people. And so this is resonating with people a lot more, which is great because those threats are always out there. And we, I, I spoke previously about over-policing. We know that data streams have been used by law enforcement in disproportionate matters in the past to support other areas, um, the drug war, things where um, privileged communities tend to be more exempt from the law enforcement investigations. Um, this is an extension of that. And so if 
privacy can resonate more, it's actually going to have knock on positive effects for people who can protect themselves in regard to other matters as well. With two such smart folks on here who are working in this space, coming at it from different angles, I have to ask each of you, Amy, do you have a question for Quadrilla? So I'm really, you talked about wanting to um, help fund and support local providers and abortion funds. Is there a place people can look if they say, I want to make a donation? Where can I find my local provider? Because I get this question a lot and I'd love to have a really great answer to say, here's the resource that you can go to for, for where you should put your dollars that you're, you're looking to help the situation. Absolutely. That's a great question. So one resource to help identify independent abortion providers is the Abortion Care Network. It is a membership organization for independent providers all around the country. And they both have a platform to help you to identify clinics in your community, but they also have a collective fundraising mechanism called Keep Our Clinics that helps to raise money on behalf of independent providers. One of the important things about Keep Our Clinics is it has the capacity to support both for-profit and non-profit independent providers because for-profit clinics can't fundraise on their own. And so Keep Our Clinics is a way to help, again, not only fund abortion care directly, but also support the provider's ability to pay their staff and keep their facility updated and purchase new equipment. A lot of those ongoing operating expenses that can be very, very challenging for folks who are working on very slim margins. So Abortion Care Network and their Keep Our Clinics program. And then secondarily for abortion funds, the National Network of Abortion Funds is similarly a membership organization that connects abortion funds all around the country. So they also have a way that you can search by zip code to identify what abortion funds are functioning in different places and help people to get connected because those abortion funds have relationships with both Planned Parenthood and independent providers all around the country. And so being able to be connected with a fund is, again, I think about them as sort of the conduits through which people are moving around the country to get care. So those would be the places that I would send folks. The third resource that I think is really important in this moment is INeedAnA.com. And that is a, a place where folks can safely search for an abortion provider. I'm not the data expert, so I can't really speak to all of the encryption that they use, but their intention is to have a place where you could search based on your gestation and where you are to identify where there is a clinic open that's available to serve you. They have information about the laws that exist where those clinics are located so that people feel like they can make the best decision about where they need to go to get care. So they can find out if there's one that's around the corner or one that's several states away that might best meet their needs. Thank you for that and for the opportunity to ask that question. I really appreciate um, that. And as somebody who was raised in the South and my family is still in the South and I see the repressive laws coming up there, I just want to thank you for your work also. I know how important that is and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And Kwajalein, do you have a question for Amy? 
So I think, you know, you touched on it a little bit. We have certainly for a very long time been really concerned about protecting the privacy and anonymity of providers, both the physicians who provide abortion care, but also the staff who work in our clinics. We have protesters who show up outside of our facility, who record people as they're driving in and out, who take photos of license plates. We have looked into resources like Delete Me, for example, that can help people's addresses get scrubbed from the internet, but it feels like it's kind of whack-a-mole. I wonder if you have any thoughts about digital security tools that might be useful for folks who are providing care to protect their identity from the threats of folks who are anti-abortion extremists. I really want to be able to provide a really good answer. And unfortunately, when that physical world surveillance comes up, the digital world has only amplified the the issues in this space and the ability to do things like purchase facial recognition matching databases to not only do you know like the face of the person who is um, the staff member, the provider, but then you also can figure out their exact identity. There are in certain states things like um, a right to delete your information that have been provided through state privacy laws. We have five now, California, Connecticut, Colorado, Virginia, and Utah are the five states that have privacy laws. And some companies will extend that right to delete beyond people in just those states. What we really need is either for A, more states to implement privacy laws so that people have access to things like delete my information, or B, a federal privacy law to provide a baseline level of protection for everybody and provide this right so you can go to any provider who has your information, including these aggregators of lots of different types of information, and request them to delete your information from their service so it's not there. And then using resources like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF has a guide called Surveillance Self-Defense at ssd.eff.org, which provides really accessible kind of bite-sized looks into digital security for the average human who isn't going to spend their life researching digital security and privacy and all of the things that go along with it. And those tools are just available for access and download, and they can speak to a range of different things, including creating strong passwords. So when passwords get breached, random third parties can't break into accounts and try to get access to information this way. One of the big concerns is going to be doxing, which is trying to find out all of your personal information. And oddly enough, like really strong passwords are going to be a part of that. So things like security hygiene, good passwords are, are a piece of it, but we really need more legal protections in this country. And I am not even satisfied with my own answer. And I wish I could give you something um, better and more robust. It was still very, very helpful. I really appreciate those resources that I hadn't heard of before. Great. Of course, I always ask my guests, is there, particularly in this area where there's so much information, is there a question that I haven't asked that I should have because you really still have something you need to say on that particular topic? Kwajalein. We honestly don't know some of the 
truly like detrimental effects that this is going to have. It's already been very harmful to our communities. And over the next several years, depending on how the people in positions of power decide to move on the issue of abortion, the issue of bodily autonomy, the issue of our right to privacy, we could see a lot more devastation and harm. I often try to remind people that accessing abortion care has already been an obstacle course, again, even with Roe fully intact. Over the many years between the original Roe decision in 1973 and what happened on June 24th, we've seen state actors put mountains in between people's ability to access care um, and care for themselves and their families and the people who want to be able to provide them with what they need. So I am at the same time as I feel very um, concerned about what's coming next, I also want to sort of leave us with this could all be different, (laughs) that there's still the potential for us to build the kind of world that we want to live in. There's still so much that could be dismantled and reformed in a way that serves people. Um, So I don't want people to sort of rest in despair and um, feel hopeless or helpless. There are small things that we can do collectively, um, whether that's about getting engaged in what's happening um, in the political sphere where you are, getting engaged in organizations that are working on the issue that you care about, building community with people who've had abortions, being courageous enough to talk about your reproductive health stories with the people in your life so that we can further destigmatize issues around sexuality, around pregnancy, around pregnancy loss, around abortion. We can have more candid and caring conversations. I think all of those things are things that people can be doing right now. But at the same time, I want us to be working towards building new systems. I'm not waiting for the Supreme Court to grant me my liberation. I know that we are the ones who will save us. And so I look forward to opportunities to continue to build beyond this moment. Thank you. Candid and caring. I will take those words out of what you just said. Amy, your thoughts. I think you cannot work in privacy for too long before you hear the first person who says, I have nothing to hide, so this doesn't impact me. And I assume having heard that now many, many, many more times than I want to admit in my career, I want to go ahead and address that because first of all is I've never met anybody who doesn't have anything to hide. We break a hundred random laws in a hundred different ways every day. You don't necessarily want the world to have your social security number, your credit card number. Like You don't want them to see the jokes that you make in your private time because they might be not necessarily interpretable from an outside audience. Like Everybody has a thing they don't want other people to know. I've also tried to emphasize the level throughout this conversation, how difficult it is to understand the digital data space, let alone make really informed decisions, even when those decisions are available, which they often aren't. 
to the extent that if you're putting everything on the individual, you're really missing the forest um, for the trees because it's not something one person can take on. And then finally, it's just a really selfish thing to say because even if you don't think that you have anything to hide, and I've addressed you do, so you're wrong, but <laughs> even if you don't think you do, you um, have to know that there are people in your life who do and that people who are super vulnerable or have been marginalized by society over time who, even if they don't have something to hide, they're going to be attacked anyway. They're going to suffer anyway. And if you just want to say, like, I'm okay, that's that's your prerogative. Like, I'm going to be okay, but other people are not going to be okay. And we all need to care more about the impact that these decisions are going to have and what we can do collectively, because some of us have the privilege to speak up where others don't. And if we're not speaking up for those people, we have just, I think, totally failed at our duty as human beings. Um, so I hope people do that more and people don't make this into to a I'm okay situation and look more at the community and the impact that this could have on people. Impact on the community. This has been an amazing and informative conversation. So I want to thank you for being a guest on Equal Time and sharing so much information with our listeners. So thank you again, Amy Stepanovich and Kwajalein Jackson. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. I really, really appreciate you having me. So what's keeping me up at night? the gun violence that has unfortunately become too routine, with certain rituals becoming a part of America after each horror. America is losing its naivete when it comes to declaring certain places safe. In Highland Park, a homegrown man is accused of the crime, and people are shocked. While no community is immune, no one in any community is ever used to such events. Americans should have the empathy for everyone affected, and the determination to make sure everywhere is safe. I write about it in one of my latest roll call columns. Check it out. And let me know what's keeping you up. Fill me in with a tweet, at mcurtisnc3. I want to thank Fiscal Note Executive Institute for their partnership and support of today's programming. They provide a community for senior executives at global companies across industries to come together to discuss top issues affecting organizations, including diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and accessibility. To learn more about their efforts, visit executiveinstitutefiscalnote.com. And I want to thank you all for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.